Welcome to the second season of the Gutsy Health Podcast with Shanique Roney and Gina Warfel, where we share uncomplicated, practical, and affordable wellness education so you can be a self-healing champion. This episode is brought to you by the Gutsy Health Membership Program, a program that gives you inexpensive tools and resources to heal your mind, body, and soul. Visit our website at mygutsyhealth.com. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to the Gutsy Health Podcast. This is Gina Warville jumping on today. And today we have an amazing guest, Dr. Mary Party. She's a naturopathic doctor and certified functional medicine doctor. And she specializes in integrative gastroenterology and longevity. So today we're going to jump into gut stuff. We're going to talk all about bloating. Why do we get bloating? How do we correct our gut? How does that affect longevity? And this is huge because we always talk about how important the gut is, that it's like the root to the trees. And Dr. Party, I'm so excited to have you on and to go on this with you because I think that when it comes to gut issues, it's something that because it's so common, people think it's normal. So welcome. Thank you for being here. I can't wait to dive into this with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you as well. And I know your background as a dietitian. I'm sure you see this all the time. So it'd be fun to chat about it. Yeah. So, I mean, we could have taken our conversation in so many different directions. You specialize in longevity, gastroenterology. What is it that you think is the biggest challenge? Is it bloating? Does that tend to be the most common or most important to address? Yeah. And so the most common complaint by far we get in my practice is bloating. And it's about 30% of the general population experiences bloating and up to 96 of people with IBS, which is also one of our biggest specialties. So 96% of people with IBS experience bloating at some point. So it's really, really common. And we want to start to identify what are we talking about when we talk about bloating, because it means different things to different people. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, great. So we'll just dive in. So some people come to me and they say, I'm bloated. And the first question I ask is, does it feel like there is gas in the intestines or does it feel like there's excess fat or water retention? Because these are really different things. The bloating that we talk about in our practice is more of this intraluminal gas production or gas that's actually in the intestines or an intestinal issue of some sort that's going on, whether it's perception to pain, which we can talk about. But then there's a whole other side of bloating where people say, I'm bloated, I'm puffy, I have water retention or excess fat around my midsection that I don't want anymore. And so differentiating between intestinal bloating versus anything else is a really important thing, obviously, because they're so different. They're completely different etiologies. They're completely different treatments. And so we want to start to see what are we actually talking about when we use the word bloating. So are we talking about the intestinal bloating today? Is that the path we're going to go down? We're talking about intestinal bloating. And yeah, because that's really when we're talking about gut health, that's what we're talking about inside of the intestines, stomach, that kind of thing that will happen. I would imagine it's kind of like what a lot of people describe that like rock hard feeling that just like doesn't relieve the pressure in your gut, maybe all the time or after eating. I'm curious to go into this because I have heard so many people who say, even right when I wake up before I even had anything to eat, it's just like, oh, in my gut. Yes. Yeah. And so when we hear that rock in my stomach or things just sit there or I feel nine months pregnant, my belly is distended, all of those things were really looking around to the gut. Waking up with bloating kind of triggers a couple of things in my mind as we want to make sure we're ruling out other causes because typically gas that's due to anything in the intestines should usually get better in the morning. Sometimes people will say, oh, yeah, it's much better in the morning, but it's still kind of there versus no. No, it doesn't change at all, especially if it's a woman. We want to rule out ovarian causes or reproductive causes that could be contributing to the bloating there specifically. And are those reproductive issues actually causing the bloating or it's just a similar sensation? It's a sensation typically that's being felt, but it's a real sensation of bloating. So, you know, not to scare anybody, but one of the hallmark symptoms of ovarian cancer is bloating. And that bloating does not go away throughout the day. It doesn't go away at night. And so while it's very, very, very rare. We obviously want to make sure we're screening for it if it does come up and it's bloating that's not changing throughout the day. We do an an ultrasound just to look at the ovaries, make sure everything's okay. And also it's good to rule out things like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Endometriosis can cause similar types of symptoms as well. So there's a few reproductive things that we want to pull apart because we don't want to keep treating the gut if it is a reproductive hormonal issue. Yeah. So what causes bloating? 
Is there one simple answer or do you have to go down a discovery? <laughs> yeah, it's a discovery for sure. It's a rabbit hole. Oh. So not one thing causes bloating. And so one of the causes of bloating is actually intraluminal gas production. So just gas being produced in the intestines. And this is normal. So when we digest fats and carbs, we might remember back from our biochemistry classes, we produce hydrogen. And so that's common. Hydrogen and CO2 get produced when we're digesting food. So some of bloating is normal. And this is really, really important because when I started talking about bloating, I'm like, it's not normal to be bloated. And then I would get all these patients and they would describe their symptoms. I'm like, oh, wait, that is normal. <laughs> so we want to normalize some degree of bloating, especially right after eating. So if you eat an amount of food that takes up this much space, you know, like say like a big softball or whatever in your stomach, there's also going to be gas production of CO2 and hydrogen just by digesting the fats and carbs that are in it and protein. So it's going to expand a little bit and there's going to be some degree of expansion that can be felt as bloating. That should be going away within one to two hours of eating, and you should be kind of back to your baseline after that. That's normal. It's also normal to pass gas like up to 10 to 20 times per day in terms of, you know, farting. All of those things are normal. While they may not be like the funnest things, they're part of our human physiology. What's abnormal, though, is when bloating gets worse and worse as the day goes on and interferes with our quality of life or passing gas more than 10, 20 times per day and abdominal pain. So it shouldn't be painful. So all of those things we consider abnormal. But that is something that I see commonly. Someone's like, yeah, I pass gas all day long. I'm like, how many times do you think? And they'll say like five. And I'm like, that's actually normal. So I don't want to treat that because we are mammals and we do produce gas and it's just part of our life. What if it smells bad? Would you say that that's normal? There's a degree of spelling bad that is normal. So your farts should not smell good. There's going to be some sulfur in there just naturally. So that's totally normal. When it's a rancid smell, especially when the stool is rancid, that's not my normal stool. And it is absolutely disgusting, can indicate an infection, especially if there's maldigestion happening. So on occasion, it's abnormal, but usually you'd see other symptoms, especially like diarrhea, like really watery stools, blood in the stool, things like that. So let's say that someone is like, yeah, I'm this bloating. It's too much. My stomach feels rock hard. It doesn't feel like a little bit. Why is that a problem? What can happen? Like what are the manifestations down the road from that? Yeah, the biggest thing is it usually interferes with people's quality of life. And so a stat that I like to throw out is the quality of life with somebody with IBS, where bloating is a really common symptom they're experiencing every day, is similar to that of somebody with end-stage kidney disease who's on dialysis three days a week. So the quality of life can take a huge hit when there's really uncomfortable bloating and even affect people's social lives. They'll start to participate in avoidant behaviors like saying no to social things, not going out, saying no to dinners, not wanting to eat out or go to parties where there's food involved. So there's a huge psychological and social component when bloating becomes the norm. And that's really the biggest thing. Is there any actual harm to the intestines? Not necessarily, unless there's something causing the bloating like inflammatory bowel disease, where we'd want to get that into remission, things like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So with the bloating, does that have the potential for those gases to build up and open up the intestines and be a risk factor for bacterial overgrowth, like SIBO type issues. Yeah, good question. So when we have gas that's really common, so when we have bloating that's more chronic, and we should go into some of the other causes of bloating too. So intraluminal gas is one of the causes. Um, SIBO is typically, it's going to manifest in bloating. So the bloating is usually due to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth versus the bloating causing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So typically somebody will develop SIBO and as a result, they'll have increased gas production because they have more archaea, which are things that produce methane in the intestines. And methane is only produced by microbes. It's not produced by digestion of food. There's also microbes that produce hydrogen. So they have increased levels of hydrogen or methane or hydrogen sulfide. And that's actually causing the symptoms itself. So methane can slow down the GI tract and cause constipation and further worsen bloating. Because when we slow things down, then gases get stuck and trapped. And that's really where you'll see a lot of the discomfort. And then yeah. if they have an overgrowth of hydrogen, we see usually 
it speeds up digestion and can lead to diarrhea as well as bloating. And so we're always ruling out small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or intestinal methanogen overgrowth when somebody comes into the practice with bloating. It's one of the most common mm-hmm. tests that we run. So I'd be curious your thoughts on this. You know, tell me if you have a different opinion. But I heard a speaker say this at a conference one time that if you get bloated after a meal and it keeps happening, then what can happen is it opens up the small intestines and that valves that would normally stay closed until your food passes through the intestines. Now the bloating and the gases are opening up that valve. And now the bacteria that would normally stay in the colon can move to the small intestine that that can actually be a cause for SIBO. Do you think that that's possible? Do you think that could be a cause for SIBO? Potentially. I actually haven't read as much about that. Mm-hmm. And clinically, it doesn't make a, much of a difference because you're still going to treat the bloating, right? There's no question where we want to reduce the bloating if it's causing an interference with daily life and if tests are positive or SIBO. She's talking about the ileocecal valve, which is the junction between the small intestines and the colon. And the difference there is that our colon has much, much more bacteria compared to our small intestines. And that's why we call it small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is because there's more bacteria in the small intestines than most of it should be in the large intestines. So it's like a retrograde movement from the large intestines to the small intestines. Definitely plausible and and can happen. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So let's move back to the causes. So we have the bloating that's in the intestines, just the gases that are in the intestines. Mm -hmm. You said that there was another one off the block? Yeah. So there's been a bunch of studies that have been done that look in people that experience bloating or distension, and they actually take plain film radiographs. So they'll take an x-ray or a CT of the person's abdomen, and they'll look to see how much gas is in their abdomen. And so they have a cohort of people that experience bloating and then a group of people that say, no, I'm not bloated. And what was really interesting is they found that a lot of the times the amount of gas was similar between the two groups. And so there wasn't a difference in the amount of gas, but one group said, yeah, I feel really bloated. And the other group said, no, I don't feel bloated. And so this really interesting. And so this started to kind of spawn the idea of something called visceral hypersensitivity, which is a state where the nerves in the enteric nervous system and in the gut that are sensing pressure. So I call them like little pressure meters that can see like, is there a lot of gas? or not a lot of gas or discomfort or not discomfort, they may be hypersensitive to sensations in the intestines that aren't actually there. And so that's where a little amount of discomfort causes a big pain signal to go to the brain. And so this is well established in the medical literature that there's something called visceral hypersensitivity. It's really common in people with irritable bowel syndrome. Is there anything that you can do or it's just So they don't actually have any physical bloating issues. They're just more sensitive to what is in their intestines. Exactly. Yeah. There's a hypersensitivity that's there. And there's absolutely things that you can do for it, which is why it's so important to figure out if this is going on because we can treat it. The treatment for visceral hypersensitivity, in most part, we use a treatment for the gut-brain interaction. And so the discomfort you're feeling in the gut has to send a signal to the brain in order for you actually to experience the discomfort. And so in IBS, we really think that there's a kink in communication that happens between the gut the brain and that's part of the cause of the symptoms. And so we want to work on that communication between the gut and the brain to allow for fluid signaling of discomfort when discomfort is actually there versus blocking signals that discomfort is actually not there. And so there's a few ways that we can do this. One of them is gut-directed hypnotherapy. So there's applications out there that you can download on your phone. One of them is called Nerva. And that helps to rewire that gut-brain connection by relaxation techniques and as well like medical hypnotherapy, which is really interesting. So I'm getting into the subconscious. So is that like stimulating the vagal nerve or, or the vagus nerve? Is that how that's working? Likely a piece of it is the parasympathetic nervous system, which includes the vagus nerve, getting people into a relaxed state. And we can touch on the stress response, but stress is a huge factor when it comes to chronic GI issues. And the other treatment for the gut-brain 
kind of kink or issues with visceral hypersensitivity would be cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, because we want to change our perception of the pain and to realize that, especially in IBS, the pain from bloating is not going to be a threat to our health. And just that change in mindset can help to calm down the nervous system to say, okay, it's uncomfortable, but it's not causing me any major health issues that could arise from it. And then the other thing is, is we change the perception of the thoughts that we're having about the discomfort. So often people will catastrophize and say, if I have this bloating for the rest of my life, I will end up alone as a hermit. I don't want to go out. I'll never meet a partner. I'm never going to have children or a family. You know, it sounds silly when I say it like this, but these are real world thoughts that people come into my practice with every single day. So we want to break down those thoughts and label them as catastrophizing or overthinking or ruminating and, and really start to work on the communication between the gut and the brain that way by stopping behaviors that are perpetuating their symptoms, even if they feel like coping behaviors. So really making people identify the things just for their making their symptoms worse because it's just making them more anxious that mm. they're having the thoughts in the first place. It's really interesting. I really, really appreciate that you addressed all of those things because what we really believe in is we use a roadmap called the order of healing and we have gut as number three and we focus on mitochondria just before gut help with energy and all that. And then before that, we have mindset. And what a lot of people find is when they have gut issues, they're like, oh, I couldn't wait to get to the gut section, but I actually really needed it to just be more mindful of my thoughts and my stress and my nervous system. I think it's so powerful. Can you actually break down a little bit of that connection? I think some people don't really understand how powerful that connection is between the mind and the stress response and how that influences how the gut functions. Oh, yeah. So this is like my favorite topic to agree <laughs> on. So I love it. Let's go. <laughs> I love to tie in, in your order as well. So I like to start with stress response and then we'll talk about our thoughts and being mindful afterwards. But we're supposed to be in a stress response, an acute stress response for really no more than like 90 seconds. So that's what our body is evolved to experience is like a 90 second or three minute maximum like acute stress response. The analogy I like to use is if a zebra starts being chased by a lion, that's not going to last hours and hours, right? The zebra is going to be dead by that point. Never mind days or weeks or months or years. And so we have processes in the body that respond really well to acute stressors. What happens is that if we see a threat, our heart rate's going to increase, our respiratory rate, how quickly we're breathing is going to increase. We're going to start to shunt blood flow to our legs, our arms to run away or to fight. We're going to shunt blood flow away from our digestive tract, our reproductive organs, because we're not supposed to be eating or reproducing if a lion is chasing us or we're in stress. And our libido will start to drop we'll actually start to go onto the balls of our feet and we'll tense our shoulders and brace our abdomen in case we get hit or we have to run really quickly. So this is all part of a normal stress response. Cortisol levels will increase, epinephrine and norepinephrine, our adrenaline hormones will increase and that should happen, but it should also end in like 90 seconds, a couple of minutes. And that's when you see the zebra who got away from the lion, they literally will start to shake. So they'll shake it off and then they'll start eating grass again. (laughs) And that like blows my mind because they go from they almost lost their life to like, okay, now we're back to eating grass again. Yeah. And we're like the only species that doesn't actually, like we've conditioned ourselves to not shake because it wouldn't be appropriate, right? But I mean, I guess we do like if we get so scared that we're completely out of the control of our bodies. And then sometimes we do have that tremor and that shake. But other than that, when we're stressed, it's like, no, keep it together. Keep it together. Yeah. Pretend like nothing's wrong. But every other mammalian species will do some sort of release. They'll shake something like that energy, right? That builds up. What happens if we build that energy? We don't discharge it. Right. So first of all, our stressors are almost never 90 seconds. There's never a lion. Instead, they're lasting for hours to days to weeks to years. And there's no discharge. So we're not shaking it off. We're not dancing. We're not screaming. We're not expressing our emotions authentically anymore. We've learned to suppress those as adults in society. And so what happens with chronic stress response where we move past the acute phase is that norepinephrine and epinephrine and cortisol is all going to affect your 
gastrointestinal tract because you're shunted to the sympathetic nervous system more so. So you're in that fight or flight response at a low level. And so your GI is the least of importance when you're in that. And so that's when people will start to experience chronic nausea, bloating, indigestion, food sitting in the stomach and not moving. It's really a shutdown of that vagus nerve and parasympathetic system and an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. And so we all experience stress differently. So some people will experience chronic GI issues. Other people will notice like tension in their shoulders or neck pain or chronic headaches, tension headaches, joint pain, fatigue. It just depends on your presentation. But we really know that this is a big factor when it comes to chronic GI issues because of the imbalance of the autonomic nervous system that's seen with that delayed stress response. A common thing that they see in my practice is that somebody comes in and they had an acute stressor. So say their spouse passed away and then four months later, they started to get nauseous. They weren't really eating because they were grieving and then they got stomach pain. And it was a stomach pain that they've never felt before. That triggers a reaction in the body that says, oh, no, something's really wrong. And anxiety starts to increase with that as well. And when anxiety increases, what happens is the area of your brain that scans your body for threats becomes hypervigilant. And so you start to scan the rest of your body and you say, oh, yeah, there's gas, too. And my stools look a little bit different. You start to go on this scanning mode of looking for anything wrong in your body, which further increases anxiety, right? When you start to find mm-hmm. things that aren't what you thought they were. And that anxiety then shuts off the parasympathetic nervous system even more. And then the gut systems get worse. And then the worsening of the gut systems makes you more anxious. And then you become more hypervigilant. And now you're noticing that maybe you have a little joint pain or maybe you're more tired than you think. And this is, you can see how it can really spiral into a chronic health issue and the mindset of I'm sick now. And that mindset of I'm sick can really start to perpetuate symptoms and go down the path that I end up seeing people at, which is um, they have multiple, multiple symptoms outside of even gut issues. And they're not letting, but their thoughts are worsening the symptoms that are actually there. Yeah, I think it's really powerful because I know a lot of our members and a lot of our listeners have shared that they have seen themselves go down exactly what you explained. And it's so relatable, like with Janique, I don't think she would mind me sharing because she's talked a lot about her own journey on this podcast. But almost two years ago now, she lost her husband, Tristan, who was the one who created this podcast and just the intensity of the pain and the stress. And then all of a sudden bringing on mysterious, you know, health issues for her that, oh no, what's going on in my body in this like, in this cycle? And then, then it's interesting and then it gets confusing. It's like, is my mind doing this? You also have these weird health issues at the same time. And it becomes like a really, I think, difficult cycle to try to like really get out of because you're also getting deeper in it and scared, like what's happening with my body. And so I really appreciate that you focus so much on that relationship that healing is everything. All of us, it's not just take the probiotic, do the enzymes, do the things in my gut or whatever it is, but it all matters. All of our thoughts, our heart, our emotions, the stress, it all matters. So you explained that mechanism like really beautifully, you know, how the stress response that we're in all day long can affect our digestion. How does that affect other things now, like autoimmunity and our gut health and things with like immune issues? And how can that chronic stress that affects the gut affect everything else or even longevity in our health? Yeah, absolutely. Stress is going to affect almost everything. And so what I tell people is that the discomfort you're feeling is real. So we don't want to ever dismiss or gaslight and say, you know, it's all in your head. You know, it's just from stress or it's just from anxiety. It may be a trigger or a perpetuating factor, but the discomfort that you're feeling is real. It's a real pain signal that's going off in the brain. And not only pain, but you'll also see changes in the immune function when we get stressed. And so your immune system will start to get suppressed. I've seen almost every symptom that is rooted in stress. People will get tingling if they're anxious or they'll get kind of like neurological symptoms sometimes. So it can really be anything. It's the body that's different per person as to where it will go with them. But when your body is under that much stress for that long, it's not used to the hormonal and nervous system changes. You know, we're supposed to like I said, 90 seconds, shake it off. 
And unfortunately, we're under these pressures for much more than 90 seconds now. So I really view this as a problem in the way that we're living. That's a much bigger discussion, but our society is not wired for health. And so we have to be really intentional about how we can still participate in society, stare at a screen all day, be a mom, but also a CEO and also a homeschool teacher during COVID and Mm -hmm. still be healthy. We weren't designed to do that. So what are all the things we need to do to support it? It's easy to start to think like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And Johnny can I talk about this all the time? We'll call each other and I don't understand what's wrong with my body. We're like, hold on, wait a minute here. You're CEO of a company. You also are running another program at a company and you have two children and all of this like, wait a minute, let's slow down. And like, really, our bodies weren't actually designed for this. We got to slow some things down here. 100%. Yeah, we're not living in a normal setting that we were evolved to live in. Our genetics haven't caught up to the advancements of technology and society and how we've structured everything. So we have to give ourselves a lot of grace, a lot of self-care, a lot of love. And also it would make sense that we have to do interventions that aren't necessarily natural all the time. As a naturopathic doctor, I love to use natural modalities, herbs, vitamins, minerals, diet, exercise, lifestyle. But if we put ourselves in such an unnatural situation, then sometimes we also need things that are beyond the natural realm to help us. Right. So before we keep going a little bit deeper into that, one of the questions that people had is that we get a lot is like, I don't see the connection between why my bloating is a problem. Why is that really important for people to address? Yeah. And like I said, I think there is some degree of bloating that's normal. And so I'm usually convincing people that their symptoms are more normal versus less normal, because I think that if it's not affecting your actual health, so there's things like if you have blood in your stool, and that's something that could be really detrimental to your actual health, depending on the cause of it. Right. And, and if it's some degree of bloating where you're like, it doesn't interfere with my quality of life, it doesn't bother me, it kind of goes away at night, not worried about it, then I say, great. I wouldn't worry about it either. I think that we want to make sure that we're not over-medicalizing general health conditions because people tend to do that themselves anyway. So we're trying to bring them back to center. If it is interfering with your quality of life and say you're like, yeah, I don't really care, but I'm not going out to eat anymore. I don't. I'm only eating these six foods because those are my safe foods. And I no longer will travel because when I travel, my symptoms get worse. Then it's clearly affecting your quality of life and your decisions. And so we want want to make sure that we're addressing that because your psychological and your social health are just as important as your physical health. And so we want to make sure that anything that's being an obstacle for you to go out with friends and socialize and travel and experience the world is being addressed. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget how the gut can be connected to everything else. And when that comes into alignment, what a domino effect it can have on everything else. I have a friend who has been sharing like really, really she has really bad bloating all the time and it's it's very uncomfortable but she's like i just i don't i haven't really wanted to like do the all the things to fix it but she's also had autoimmune issues and joint pains and brain fog and i think sometimes we forget that that connection that it all starts in the gut with inflammation and healing all of that and i think maybe focusing on the gut can probably affect everything else right A hundred percent. So we have the gut-brain interaction, but we know we have the gut-liver interaction. Our gut is a hub for the microbiome, which is over a hundred trillion microorganisms. And those microorganisms can produce byproducts that will cross over into the blood and can affect our brain, our liver, our metabolism, our immune system. And so there is this communication that happens throughout every organ system in the body, and they all are intimately linked. Your example of your friend, she would never come in to see me yet, right? Because she just is like, I'm not ready yet. Right. Um, So when I see people, they're coming in and they're saying, you know, I'm ready, I'm here. And and so it's a little bit of a different scenario because sometimes it just takes people certain things to be ready. Until that person is ready, there's nothing we've all tried it with. I do it with my parents all the time. Not my brother. I'm like, you should do this. And I'm like, oh my God, I did it again. Until that person is coming to ask for advice, there's a mental kind of block or whatever the block is there for starting the process. 
with yeah. ourselves. But absolutely, when we treat the gut, other things usually will get better too. So it's not uncommon that people come in, they've got bloating and constipation and we treat the gut and then they notice, yeah, like my skin looks clearer too. Or like, oh, I was able to lose the last five pounds that I haven't been able to lose. And we don't know the explanation for all of them yet, but we do know that the microbiome likely has a part in the regulation of other symptoms outside of the body. For sure, there is evidence for that. Yeah. Do you tend to see a strong relationship between people who do have things like autoimmunity and gut issues? Do those tend to go hand in hand in, in your practice? Yeah. So we'll often see like sometimes we'll have people that will come in with bloating and they also have rheumatoid arthritis and their joint pain may get better. And I think one of the reasons behind that too is usually when we are healing the gut, we're really emphasizing a healthy, balanced diet. And so if you go from eating the standard American diet, high in sugar, high in fat, to a healthy, balanced diet that's higher in protein, higher in fiber, then you're going to notice systemic benefits throughout the body. And one of those may be a reduction in inflammation that's seen that can improve things like autoimmune conditions. Absolutely. So yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we call the gut our second brain because it has more neurons than a cat's brain. So it has hundreds of millions of neurons in our gut. And it's just fascinating how much can actually be changed there and how much goes on there beyond what we even know right now. So I'm really excited for the research to come when it comes to the microbiome and everything that has to do with our gut. It's like a whole nother universe that we haven't explored yet. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are the conditions that you see a lot of gut issues or the bloating? What issues can have symptoms of bloating? Yeah, yeah. What conditions experience bloating? Yeah. So irritable bowel syndrome, like I said, is about 10 to 20% of the population, more commonly in women. Bloating is a really common symptom, almost universal in IBS. IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, things like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, bloating will be really common in as well. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Well, a key mark symptom is bloating in both of those. And then you have your reproductive things. So endometriosis commonly is associated with SIBO and bloating too. What else? Pancreatic issues. So chronic pancreatitis will have some bloating in it. There are certain infections that can cause bloating, such as Giardia is a really common one. H. pylori can experience kind of abdominal pain, but can also sometimes say that they feel bloated because there's this distension that can be going on with H. pylori too. There's a lot. So this could be a long, long list. <laughs> But yeah, we're ruling all of these things out when you come in. So it's so important that you're not going in and just treating the bloating. We want to make sure we know what the cause is, right? And if we've ruled everything out, then there is empiric treatment that you can do. But when someone comes into my practice, I'm doing a full blood panel on them if they haven't had one done. I'm looking for Giardia. I'm looking for H. pylori in the stool, possibly other parasites if they have diarrhea as well. We're looking at inflammatory markers like CRP and Cedrate and possibly calprotectin in the stool. We're we're doing a SIBO breath test if they have gas and bloating to see if there's hydrogen, methane, or hydrogen sulfide elevated in the small intestines. So we're doing a really comprehensive panel to figure out where is this bloating coming from. And then we go from there as to what the treatment is. Yeah, I'm kind of curious like what your journey pathway of exploring that looks like. Because I'm always like starting and figuring out hey, what path would somebody really need to like see a doctor where they have a medical issue. But a lot of the time what I find is that within the first three steps, I might ask somebody, are you calming down your nervous system before you eat? Are you taking a few breaths, making sure that you're sitting? Are you making sure that you're chewing your food really well? And sometimes more often than not, probably they're like, wow, I just decided to sit down and focus on my meal and take a few slow breaths and chew my food. And now my digestion is back on track and working. And so kind of curious what your path is like of where you do this discovery of what are the kinds of questions that you're asking or the ways that you're discovering? What is that origin? Yeah, that's a great point because typically people come to see me and they've already seen 
five, 10 other practitioners. Like we're usually one of the last stops. So they've tried a lot of other things, but sometimes not. And sometimes they've seen a bunch of other practitioners and they still haven't tried the things that you mentioned, Gina. And so it's amazing when somebody can see a practitioner like yourself before they ever get to see me, because sometimes they'll never have to see me. So what it looks like when I see somebody is that I do a full intake with them about an hour long. We talk all about their poop and I show them the bristle stool chart and I get a a good amount of information about their family history, what it was like in childhood growing up. We do an adverse childhood event score to see if there was a name childhood trauma. So we're doing a really holistic intake to see what were the likely triggering or predisposing factors or precipitating factors in childhood. You know, just incredible. Yeah, it's super comprehensive and it gives us so much information and it makes everything like, oh, this makes sense now. And I also tell it back to the person so that they understand and it makes sense to them too. Sometimes we can be so in our own world, it's hard to put the pieces together without an outsider's perspective of it or just a different perspective. But then once we do that intake and I order the labs for them, I'm already starting treatment and it's really similar to what you do, it sounds like, where I'm telling them we're going to go to a whole foods diet start to walk 10,000 steps per day. You know, if you're incorporating mindfulness, like a meditation, we'll talk about what will work for them. And then we're talking about mindful eating for sure. So make sure you chew your foods until it resembles baby food, like a puree before you swallow. Maybe doing some deep breaths before you even take your first bite. The key that usually like sticks with people is make sure you're salivating before you start to eat. So however long that takes, but to look at your food, to smell your food, to sit with the food until you have saliva forming in your mouth, which is a signal that your brain is ready to eat. Avoiding distractions while you're eating. So trying to eat with somebody else where you're having like a very peaceful conversation, but avoiding scrolling on your phone, avoiding watching the TV. And we're talking about some of the digital therapeutics we use too. So gut-directed hypnotherapy, we may be sending people off with that while they're waiting for their labs to get back or CBT, we use an app called Mahana. And so we're starting with the basics after we have that first meeting. And then they have weeks in between where we're waiting for their lab results where they're practicing these basics. And it is not uncommon that people come back after that and they say, I'm 80% better. Wow. And And we're like, amazing. It's also not uncommon because we are a specialized clinic that they're not 80% better and they've already tried all of these things. Sometimes I see people don't try any of the things because they're so set on it must be a parasite, it must be yeast, it must be this. And that's really tough because if you're so set in a diagnosis that you haven't actually found out yet, then it can be really hard to make the mindset shifts that likely would expedite the process of healing, but meet people where they are in their healing journey, of course. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you start people there with checking in those first steps. Are they slowing down? Are they not stressed? I think all really, really important that we can't overlook because we do. We just want to go to like, what's the protocol? What's the thing? And then so you're doing those first steps, which I think are so important. And then you're kind of like getting clues, right? Maybe some signs and symptoms. Are there specific things that help you point you in a different direction? You did mention like ruling out the reproductive issues and things like that. Is there any other clues that people should be looking for that can help give them some guidance of what might really be going on? Yeah. Sometimes, depending on the person, we'll start with an elimination diet. So we'll take out milk is a big one, right? With bloating, lactose intolerance is really common. And so we want to take out the obvious things there. And so sometimes we'll take out products like milk. We'll take out things like gluten in case there's a non-celiac gluten sensitivity. We're testing for celiac, obviously. Mm -hmm. And we'll take out things like nuts and nut butters. We'll have them eat more of their foods cooked versus raw to just help with the digestive process, things that are easier to digest. And so we can go through that elimination diet just to see, is it any of the foods that are commonly causing bloating symptoms? And if that's the case, we want to make sure we're reintroducing foods as well. So we will only do an elimination diet for up to 90 days, ideally much shorter, start with a 30 day. And then after that, we say reintroduction is essential. So we do not want to take out foods from your diet that are healthy 
promoting for long term because we want to increase and support a diverse microbiome, not reduce diversity of the microbiome. And a variety of foods is really the essential there. And so we're looking at that as a big part of it. And then we're just seeing what the labs show as well. Yeah, I'm kind of curious your take if you help, if you have people follow a low FODMAP diet, which is those, the FODMAPs, they're like those fermentable fibers. Do you have people follow a low FODMAP diet? And how do you navigate that? Because I know it's really tricky, the restriction that there's so much that you can't eat. How do you navigate that? Do you use low FODMAPs? Yes. And it's changed throughout my career. So when I first started, I did low FODMAP diets right after we did treatment with Zyfoxin and Neomycin if we were doing an antibiotic treatment for SIBO. And I used it for the treatment of SIBO and used it for six weeks. And then you start to taper people off of it and reintroduce. And that's really the key there is you don't want to be on a low FODMAP diet for a prolonged period of time. Can you explain why? Explain yeah. why it's not good to eliminate, especially because a lot of people will say, oh, well, I get bloating, but as long as I eliminate onions, garlic, broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and they'll list this whole long list of these fibrous foods. And they're like, I'm fine as long as I just keep those out of my diet. Can you explain the problem with that? Absolutely. And we see it all the time. It's not uncommon that people come in, they're like, I'm only eating these seven foods or I've eliminated these 25 foods and I'm fine. That's not good for long term. And there's two big reasons. There's probably more, but there's two big reasons that I look at when I see that is that one of them is the diversity of your gut microbiome is like a rainforest. And so if you think about a rainforest, you have frogs, you've got monkeys, you've got birds, you've got different plant species. It should be that everything kind of around you looks a little different, right? It's not when you go into strawberry fields and all you see is strawberries. So we don't want our microbiome to look like a strawberry field. We want it to be a bunch of different species, a bunch of different viruses, even naturally occurring protozoa. All of these things, we should have different things in the gut microbiome because they each feed off of each other and have a symbiotic relationship. So just like in a forest, you have flowers and those flowers provide food for the bees and then the bees go and pollinate the other flowers and then... And the birds eat the seeds from the flowers. Like it's this ecosystem that revolves and evolves around itself to support itself so it can be self-sufficient. You want the same thing in your gut. So you want the bacteria that produce hydrogen, but also the ones that eat hydrogen and produce butyrate. And you want the ones that produce methane and then turn that into something else. You need everything there to work in conjunction with itself. We don't yet know what the ideal microbiome is. So we know so much about it, but we don't know what that is. But we do know that diversity is one of the most important things in your gut microbiome. And so in order to have diversity of the gut microbiome, you need diversity of your diet. So you need to be eating different types of prebiotic fibers, different types of soluble, insoluble fibers, different types of proteins, mostly plants, like having a ton of different diversity of the color of your foods from plants. That usually indicates they have different polyphenols, which are food sources for your microbes as well, like antioxidants. What makes a banana yellow versus what makes a raspberry red is a composition of their structure, which usually indicates different polyphenols and antioxidants in them. And so when somebody goes on such a restrictive diet, they're usually eating the same exact foods every single day. We worry about the diversity of the gut microbes biome that would be present. And so we want to expand that. So that's number one. Number two is that when you are constantly telling your body that it would not do well with food or that there's any fear of food that develops, that can be really detrimental psychologically. And this is hands down one of the biggest things that I see when people go on low FODMAP diets or any restrictive diet for a prolonged period of time is they they become scared to reintroduce food. They now think the food is causing their symptoms and the food is the culprit. They almost view it as like a poison or an allergy to their body. And that can be cause so much harm when it comes to our relationship with food. And our relationship with food is already under pressure. You're in the world, not America. And we have ideas of what our body image should look like or when we eat food, we eat when we're stressed or when we're sad or when we're feeling lonely. And there's so much that goes into food already. The last thing we need is this fear of food on top of it. And so that's really the bigger one in my mind, even over diversity, is that I'm really cautious about creating a fear of food in people. 
the word orthorexia didn't exist like 50 years ago, but it's now very present because there's so much that can go into this hyper fixation around health and food that ends up being detrimental to our actual physical and psychological health. Mm. So you mentioned before that you were in the past, you were doing antibiotics and low FODMAPs. How has things evolved for you now? Yeah, so I still use antibiotics in my practice to treat SIBO and intestinal methanogen overgrowth. I also use herbs, though. So some people, they just want to use herbs, and we can definitely do that. Um, you, so you need a longer course of herbs versus antibiotics. And so my mm-hmm. typical go-to treatment would be antibiotics followed by herbs so that we're really giving an extended period of time that somebody is experiencing an antimicrobial effect. Because it's really, really common. First of all, I'm not the first-line person, so if somebody's already usually seen a gastro and just the two weeks of antibiotics by the time they've seen me. And usually they're coming back because they did that and it didn't work. And so we want to do an extended program where we're addressing that. Then also we're addressing mental, emotional health and all the other things, which the gastroenterologist usually didn't even touch on. So yeah, so usually it's like two weeks antibiotics and then we'll do herbs after. And then we're addressing all of the other things as well. I don't go towards the low FODMAP diets as a first line anymore because of the sphere of food that I've seen. It's really hard to convince people to get off of the low FODMAP diet or like, I feel good. I don't want to stop it. Or I'm scared to reintroduce. And so I'm so sensitive about who I would suggest that to Mm -hmm. and the manner in which we do it. So we also have a device now that we use in our practice, which is called the food marble device. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I've never heard of that. What is it? It's cool. It's a new company that came out with this device. looks like a little square, but it's an at-home device to measure methane and hydrogen levels. And so we actually have people purchase it and we can do lactulose rests at home and they have it forever, right? So they just pay for it once and they have it forever. And with that, they give people four of the FODMAPs that are most likely contributing to gas symptoms. So they give them a packet of pure fructose, inulin, fructose, inulin, sorbitol, and lactose. And so they give you packets and in those packets are just that one ingredient. And it's really nice because food has usually multiple FODMAPs in it. It's like sorbitol and fructose and this and, you know, inulin and lactose and that. And so when we can divide them out, we have people do challenge tests to see, is it inulin? Is it fructose? Is it sorbitol? Or is it lactose for you? And if it's one of those foods, then I'm okay saying, okay, take out all the foods that are just high in that one FODMAP versus... So, so you're finding... that This is really cool. So you're actually giving people the very specific fiber for them to test to see which fiber in particular is creating the bloating. So then they take the fiber, they can see which one causes bloating because excess bacteria are creating those gases and fermentation. Instead of eliminating all the fibrous foods, you're just eliminating the ones with that specific fiber. That's really cool. Makes so much sense. It really reduces the fear around food. And it also helps to create a more objective measurement versus just saying, I don't feel good. Because of that visceral hypersensitivity, there's things there that we really want to make sure we're being as objective as possible. And then if it's only one of those and all the others are fine, then we say there is no reason for you to eliminate things that are high in sorbitol. We just want to keep this one out. And sometimes it's not that clear, right? Obviously, this is like the ideal situation, but that's where I start with people versus putting them even through a low FODMAP diet for six weeks and then trying to figure out just based on subjective data what they feel good or not good with the fear of, okay, are they even going to introduce now or are they so scared to do that? Mm, Yeah. Well, I think I'm taking away two really big things that you just said. One is that looking for the root cause of the bloating is important. And if we're not looking for that root cause, it doesn't actually get down to the source of the problem. Being open to being on this exploration of like, what is the root cause versus like, let me just fix the symptom. And the other thing that you said too is, I think how important those small things are, like the nervous system, the stress, your mindset, chewing, connecting with your food, how important that is. And those are things that maybe if you're not working with a practitioner yet, you can start doing those now. You can start experimenting with those things and seeing like, oh, is my stress response? Can I sit here in front of my food, take a breath, really connect with my body, get all my digestive juices turned on, And then if I'm still having these problems, okay, who do I need on my team who can help me from a root cause place? And that's why I have such appreciation that you are on our podcast today, because not only can you speak to the science, but you can help people see, hey, everything matters. 
your mind matters, your emotions matter, all the little things matter. And let's look upstream and really see like, what is the root cause of why something is off in the gut? How, what things need to talk to each other? Where do we need to like look for the origin of the bloating? Absolutely. And that's why I love what you guys do, because ideally, and I really say this totally truthfully, is ideally people don't come to see me. They can fix everything by just eating a healthy, well-balanced diet, participating in some sort of mindfulness, eating with mindfulness, looking at their sleep, their exercise, right? Just the foundations of health, which is the principle of naturopathic medicine. That would be the ideal that they don't ever even have to see a practitioner like me. Yeah. And that's exactly how it should be like that is how it should be where you're both taking full responsibility together where you're like hey i'm showing up and i'm doing my part i'm taking care of myself in the ways that i know how and then when i do work with a practitioner i'm like hey here's all the things i'm doing what else can i not see how can you help me bring in the science and then we can work as a team and i think sometimes we don't get good results and we're just like somebody save me you know <laughs> but to be able to both show up together like hey let's figure this out together and so i really value what you do and your practice, because there are not a lot of practitioners who are willing to, I mean, I've talked to so many people who are like, I have had IBS my entire life and no one has ever told me that my emotions, my trauma could be a big part of it or why I'm struggling. So I really value so much of what you do. You're based in Los Angeles, right? But you also work with people virtually. What is your practice like? Yeah. So my practice is called Modern Med. We're based in Los Angeles. We have an in-person office in Sherman Oaks, which is just north of LA. And we do virtual telemedicine. So most of our patients are telemedicine. I love when people can come to our in-person practice because yeah. I think sitting across from somebody just creates this amazing rapport that's really irreplaceable. And so we do both. And so I work with people in California as well as Colorado or the two states that I'm licensed in. And we do complimentary phone consults if you're interested in becoming a patient but not really sure yet or have questions for us. There's a link on our website that you can schedule that. And and please email us with any questions that come up on our website. We have a ton of information, blogs and videos that we do with our practitioners so you can see who would be the best fit for you. And then my Instagram is also where I post most of my educational content around gut health, but also the things we didn't talk about, my passion for longevity and exercise and nutrition. Could be a whole nother thing. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. So Instagram is a course. Yeah, Instagram's at dr.maryparty. And then I do have a gut health course that's hosted by One Commune. And we'll give you the link to that. But it goes through 10 different lessons about the gut. So we talk about irritable bowel syndrome. We talk about inflammatory bowel disease, reflux, how your hormones impact your gut health and how women's cycles can change how their gut functions throughout the month. We talk about even helminthic therapy, worm therapy to help with GI issues, fecal transplants there too, which is one of my favorite things to discuss. So we get into some weird stuff and some common stuff and some not so common stuff, but there's usually something there for everybody. I just have one quick question about what you said. I saw on your website that you do fecal transplants. I thought that was not legal in the US. Can you do that legally in the US? Yes. So fecal transplants were in a really gray area currently, actually, because there was just FDA approval for a prescription FMT product that's going to come out, which we're really excited about. And that would be only approved by the FDA for the treatment of C. difficile infections. So Clostridium yeah. difficile, you can treat with FMT, which is what we've been doing in our practice using donor banks in the past. So that's the only FDA approved use of FMT right now is for C. diff infections. However, we do offer a service in our practice where we're acting as a safeguard, so like a safety mechanism for people that are going to do FMT at home with a donor that say like their spouse or mother or sister or somebody, they found a donor. They're like, I'm going to do this because I know it's going to help me and I'm going to do it with or without you. So we now have a service that will help them screen their donors to mm -hmm. limit the risk that they could potentially you know, transmit something from one person to the other. So we view it really as we want to make sure like you tell a teenager not to have sex versus giving them a condom and saying, let's talk about sex yeah. safety, right? So <laughs> same kind of thing where if they're going to already do it, we want to make sure that we help them screen 
screen their donors so they can do it as safely as possible and limiting the risk for transmission. And then also just information about like how often may you want to do it? Is there any evidence that FMT will help the condition you're hoping to treat? So there's good evidence around inflammatory bowel disease, specifically IBD with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, but there's not great research with IBS. And so we want to go through that with you and talk about the expectations and have you tried these other things first, which yeah. do have good evidence around them. Yeah. Well, that could be a whole nother day, a whole nother topic. We actually just interviewed somebody about fecal matter transplants in Canada and some what great. their research they're doing with that. So if listeners, if you're like, what's a fecal matter transplant and check out that episode that was just recently. But Dr. Party, thank you so much. We will link all your information. I'm definitely going to check out all of your resources. And I learned a lot today. I hope you guys learned a lot. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Gina. I appreciate that. All right, listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Gutsy Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed and learned a lot from this episode. For more updates, follow us on Instagram at Gutsy Health Podcast. 